0: Welcome.
1: Hey, Tiffany. Thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to be here to talk with you because you're a lot of fun and you're a part of my veteran and military bubble and I love it. <laughs> we, we could get in trouble if we went and did some stuff together. Good trouble. Uh, and um, and so that would be fun. Uh, so anyway, I'm here to tell you um, a little bit about who I am and where I've been. I have had a military ID card. I, I don't know if I even told you this part one time. I have had a military ID card all but four months of my life. So I started life as a military kid. My dad was in the Army for 21 years. And I it was that time period between when I... Uh, Graduated from um, was no longer a full time student actually in college uh, back in uh, the uh, late 70s because the rules were different for hanging on to IDs back then. I lost my ID uh, back then and uh, joined the army four months later, lost my ID at the end in August and joined the army in January of the next year. Uh, so I went from being a military kid to being a soldier, and went uh, spent nine years and nine months on uh, active duty, and went from that to being uh, getting an Air Force spouse ID card, <laughs> which I still maintain. Because that's so I... not enough. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, I, the, the military arena in one way, shape or form has been my life. I can remember uh, being uh, on uh, Fort Bragg the day that President Kennedy was killed. I was in school and they shut down school early, sent us all home. And my dad was actually in Dallas that day. He was escorting some German generals around the United States on behalf of the Army's Special Warfare School. And my mother says that I was really upset because I was afraid that if President Kennedy uh, was killed, that my dad would be as well, because I was just young enough then in first grade to, to not, you know, to not have the connection that two separate things. Uh, uh, but I I remember growing up on, on Fort Bragg, and that's how I actually ended up uh, as a An airborne trooper because as a kid we went out to watch uh, daddy on the weekends do fun jumps to stay proficient Uh, and that's uh, when I went and talked to the the army recruiter and I told him about my military child background and he said oh well airborne school just opened up to women I said oh well that sounds fun I could do that So yeah, I call myself the original Private Benjamin. I, I entered the Army to... in uh, January of 1979, right after I graduated from the University of New Hampshire and uh, had no self-confidence, so I, even though I was offered the opportunity to go to officer candidate school, I went in as an enlisted soldier, and I am so glad that that happened uh, to me, not that I didn't have self confidence back then, but that I had the experience to be an enlisted soldier, because I would have been, I, I, I firmly believe that because of my life experience, to that point, if I had just gone to officer candidate school, I would have been a lousy officer. And, uh, and so I, I, I Ever grateful for uh, my uh, four years as an enlisted soldier in the army i went to jump school uh, after attending a combat telecommunications center operator qualification class went to jump school was assigned to the 82nd airborne division as one of the first 100 women there and was uh one of the fir- i was the first woman woman from the 82nd to attend the 18th airborne Corps uh, primary leadership development course and that prepared me to be a sergeant I remember when I finished that, I was an honor grad. Uh, When I finished that and went back to my battalion, the command sergeant major took me aside and he said, good, I'm really glad you went to that class. Now forget everything you learned and get back to work. I bet some people listening to this have probably had that happen to them.
2: Uh, Yeah, right here.
1: (laughs) So and they were they were absolutely gobsmacked um, at the at the this um, leadership school because they expected me as a woman to wear a skirt as for my dress uniform and in the 82nd I wore pants and bloused my boots and when I joined the army I wear uh wore like a size 14 or 16 uniform something like that and when I graduated from basic training I was about a size 10 and I when I got to the 82nd, I didn't ever wear my skirt again, so I never spent money on buying myself a new skirt. But I always had it hanging in my wall locker. It looked nice for the inspection. They didn't care what size it was, and um, and so I brought that with me to the school. And then they wanted me to put it on. I said, Oh no, I can't do that. It, it's a little big on me. And besides, I don't wear a skirt anywhere. I wait. I wear pants. I had to have them call my unit and and get permission for me to wear. Um, pants in their form in their dress uniform formation, uh, they were really bothered by that, uh, and they were they were so um, uncaring at the school about it that when they gave me the iron mic at graduation for being an honor graduate, they gave it to me with a blank plaque on it. So I hung on to it for many years, and then at one point I just decided, you know, if it wasn't important enough for them to put a uh, my name on the plaque, then I didn't need to move it around the, around the world anymore. So somebody else has it someplace.
2: No, I uh, have a question for you. What? So about what time frame is this? Uh, like, what year is this about? So this
1: is like 1981, 82.
2: At that point, a woman's place is at the house. But if you're going to be in the military... Wear a skirt, sit at a desk, and that's all. And shut up.
1: Yeah, when when I when I first entered the army, we uh, had a women's uh, uniform. It was a it was a pair of pants that buttoned on the side, and uh, um, the men wore fatigues that you know with the old green fatigues and with a tuck-in shirt. The women we had um, a a cotton uniform uh, with pant uh, a set set of buttons on the side and a top that went down over the front. And um, and buttoned. Uh, And so, yeah, that was that was the pretty um, female uniform. And we had a different um, couple of different versions of of, uh, a a class B uniform and a a class A uniform. Really gross. Uh, But yes, uh, it was it was um, early on. uh, And so I was uh, really glad uh, to get to the 82nd uh, where I was treated as just a soldier. And that was the best thing that the, the men and women uh, officers, NCOs in, um, in my battalion uh, did was they treated all the women just like soldiers. And that started because of the commanding general at the 82nd, he had no toleration for uh, singling women out as anything other than soldiers.
2: So here's a question for you about that too. So I've noticed even, even uh, in the time period that I was in, if you're assigned to the 82nd or the 100th, uh, and you you don't have your airborne wings, you look that you're looked down upon, whether male or female. So I wonder if I wonder if when you were there at the 82nd, because you had your airborne wings, if that was kind of a good
1: buy-in for you. Well, nobody at the 82nd you couldn't be assigned to the 82nd without being airborne qualified. That's the first thing. Uh, and, uh, I, and by that time I had developed a kind of thick skin cause I was the original private Benjamin when I joined the army. But for anybody who's been through jump school or who knows about jump school, they know that it's a three week course. And it took me nine weeks to graduate, uh, because I got hurt or sick every single week and I got recycled. When you, when you get to jump school, they give you uh, a roster number for your helmet. I was back in the old days and, and they gave, um, and they, we just went, and uh, they, I was whiskey nine when I first started, because they identified the women separately from the men. I'm not quite sure why, but they did, uh, and I, I didn't argue about it. I probably would argue about it today, but I didn't then. So I started as whiskey nine, and when I uh, finished with ground week, I was golf whiskey nine because that meant that I had repeated ground week. And when I finished with tower week I was tango golf whiskey nine because that meant I had recycled in tower week and when I pinned on my wings I was juliet tango golf whiskey seven (laughs) or golf whiskey nine I can't that's a lot of seven I guess I just looked behind me it's actually seven not whiskey nine (laughs) I was whiskey seven so I was juliet tango golf whiskey seven when I graduated from jump school Mm
2: -hmm. you know you just like so you just kind of took me back because I did um PLDC right there at the jump tower
1: <laughs> uh-huh. and I remember,
2: yeah so I remember I we were um, yeah our, our PLDC class and so let me just go ahead and clarify for people who are listening who are like what the heck is PLDC um, it PLDC is a primary leadership development course which turned into BLC for the basic leader course which turned into WLC the warrior leader course that's what PLDC is um, so depending on when people joined or served uh, in the army that's what right. that's what PLDC is cause yeah um, but I just remember I mean I remember seeing people doing the doing tower week and um, I, I I just I'm curious I wonder how many people when they jump off the tower how many cause one guy I remember they, they you could hear the crack when he uh, he he did something to his leg, um, because uh, he didn't do the banana roll the right way. Yeah, he must
1: not have kept his feet and knees together. So, yeah, <laughs> yep. so and that's what when I when I the reason why I was recycled at the beginning in ground week was because the harnesses were designed men and they, the uh, black hats made, um, pulled my harness as tight as they could, but it was still loose on me. So every time I jumped out of the 34 foot tower, uh, the buckles would come up and hit me right on my shoulder blades. Mm. And uh, by the morning of the second or third day, I could only raise my hands up just minimally. Uh, I could barely get myself dressed, uh, and so we figured out that uh, putting some big—I I, uh, would put uh, padding, about two inches worth of foam padding underneath my bra straps—and uh, that was enough to uh, to keep me going. Mm-hmm. See, so, yeah, yeah, that's that's. Oh my gosh! Wow. And then in town, ta- in I. Uh, See, I'm ancient enough, even though I don't look it. I'm grateful for wonderful genes. Uh, yeah, can you and, know
2: what you're like, what 45 years old?
1: Oh yeah, I'll, I'll claim that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, we ran in combat boots back then, and so I got really, really bad shin splints in Tower Week, and that's why I got recycled in Tower Week, uh, and, um, and and. When I got, when I was recycled in ground week, there was an extra week in there because the flu went through my barracks. When I got recycled in tower week, there was an extra week because there was a designated cycle break. And then, uh, in jump week, I got recycled because I did a terrible, there's no other way of explaining it. A terrible parachute landing fall PLF on my very first jump. You're supposed to use five points of contact, and I used exactly three. My feet, my butt, and my head, and I hit my head so hard on the ground, I dented my helmet. But I fooled them all. I got up, I gathered up my parachute, threw it in my kit bag, I threw everything over my shoulders, I ran off the drop zone, uh, got it on the bus. They didn't figure out that something was wrong with me until I was staggering around the parachute um, shed, harnessed up for my second jump. I, was, I looked like a little weevil fault, you know, uh-huh. and they came and asked me if everything was okay. They
2: were a little worried. So did you have like a contusion at all or anything with hitting your head?
1: Or no, I, it was on the back. Uh, so um, the, you know, they, they took me off. Uh, they took me and another person, I can't remember what happened to the other person. They flew us out by medevac helicopter the, to the Fort Benning hospital. Um, and uh, look me over. I guess they probably, I'm sure they did an x-ray or two. And, um, and I begged and pleaded with them to go back so that I could jump the next day. The, um, the doctor told me he was going to send me for a psych eval because he thought I was nuts. Um, because I wanted to go right back. They made me wait a week. And then I went back and did four more jumps Uh, and graduated. Wow. Oh my gosh.
2: So, wow. I love you, man. This is great. I feel like I'm back in the dare I say, real army or something. (laughs) Um, So you go to airborne school, you're airborne, you're at the 82nd.
1: Um, Are you still enlisted or did you become an officer? Yes, I was enlisted. I was enlisted until I left there. I actually uh, was um, sworn in as an officer the the day before I signed out or, you know, like days before I signed out. So So I was uh, fortunate to receive a direct commission uh, as, um, from E-5 to O-1, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, left there and went to the medical service corps.
2: So my question for you then is, okay, and then two different jobs. So, like, what, um, I, let me backtrack and say, you may, you said something earlier that I believe to be true as well, like, hands down, you said that you were glad that you were enlisted prior to becoming an officer. Um, and I I really do, and I'm not saying people who just, who, people who come in the military as an officer without any other experience in the military are bad officers. But I do believe that the people who are, the officers that are in the military who have that prior enlisted experience do end up being better leaders because um, when they... Tell somebody to do something they've been on that receiving end of it and that that there's it just i think those i think officers that were prior enlisted you know are are better leaders um but that's just my opinion um and it's true because it just is (laughs) but uh the the thing so what (coughs) excuse me what what uh so you're in you're you're enlisted you're airborne you do your you do hr stuff uh personnel and you say you know what uh it's time for me to become an officer like what was that no
1: no actually you know see that's the whole thing and that's why that's why i really get what happens to people when they are leaving the military right now or part of why i get it was because I had signed up for three years and at the end of three years, I didn't know what I was going to do. In fact, I hadn't even thought about it. All of a sudden my ETS was coming up and, um, and I was like, well, what am I going to do now? I don't know anything else. I had a college degree, of course, double major, uh, but I had gone in the army because I couldn't find a job. Uh, and, and so I extended for a year and, <laughs> and by that, that, by that point, I had understood that, I was capable of being an officer. So then I explored becoming an officer. I figured if I was gonna stay in, I wanted to become an officer. So that, that, that's how I got there. Uh, and um, and I, I had started at, as a 71 Lima and administrative um, clerk, they aren't called that anymore, but uh, that's what I was then. And I cross-trained as a 71 Delta and actually became the battalion legal clerk uh, and that's a paralegal. Uh, for, uh, civilians be. So, so that's what I was doing. And then I had, uh, this was before the days of uh, privacy rules and all of that kind of stuff that existed. I had, a, I, getting a direct commission hadn't never crossed my mind. I applied to officer candidate school. Uh, my first choice of branches, um, was, well, I guess, I guess they decided I should apply to, as a direct commission. I guess that's what happened I mean, yeah i guess that's what happened when i think back okay i'm getting i have to get my story straight here i applied for a direct commission to the quartermaster corps because that was the battalion that i was in um and everybody was convinced that i would be a, a good quartermaster officer even though i hadn't done anything quartermaster i had done everything hr but at any rate uh, rightfully so the quartermaster corps turned me down <laughs> And this is why I say it was the day before, days before privacy rules because somehow the commander of the medical battalion in the 82nd he got a hold of a copy of my packet and he brought it to the Army's medical service corps Um, and in between times, after I'd gotten turned down, I had applied to OCS because I figured, well, if I went, wasn't going to get a direct commission, I could, you know, easily get accepted to OCS. And so I was. I was accepted right away to OCS. And uh, but my leadership at um, in the battalion had decided uh, that because all officers in the 82nd were supposed to go be um, to jump school and be jump, I mean, jump master school and be jump master qualified they decided that I um, should go to Jumpmaster School before I left the division. So I I was in Jumpmaster School when I got my letter uh, telling me that I had been accepted for a direct commission to the Medical Service Corps. Uh, And so I finished that waited out the time period because in the letter with the acceptance was the date that I would be commissioned. So uh, did all that. And then like two days after I was commissioned, I had done all my clearing and I drove from Fort Bragg to Fort Sam Houston as a second Lieutenant.
2: When you did the direct commission, did you, how much of a say-so did you have to do like, these are my top 10 preferred branches uh, to be an officer in?
1: No, actually, I had, that's why I was, you know, in the, the, the mode of it was that when I I had applied directly to the Quartermaster Corps, when it, you do, at, at least back then, when you applied for a direct commission, you could only apply to the branch that you wanted to be in, um, and so they had me apply to the Quartermaster Corps, and that's why when uh, the commander of the medical battalion took my paperwork, uh, he brought it right to the Medical Service Corps. I, I had no say in it. Okay. And so Service Corps. So those are the just, hospital administrators, and yeah. they are the um, the podiatrists and the physical therapists. Um, I think it was physical therapists. I remember it was podiatrists. I think physical therapists were in it then, maybe not. Um, and there was um, the optometrists were in the Medical Service Corps. So, but I was the idea was was that I was going to be a hospital administrator. Uh, And originally, my first assignment would have been at the hospital at Fort Devons near Boston in Massachusetts. (laughs) And that would have been that would have been cool. But um, but during our time in in the basic course, there uh, they came in one day and they asked who wanted to go to jump school well I didn't need to do that and then they said who wanted to go to air assault school and I that was more work than what I wanted to do and then they said who wanted to go to flight school and that sounded like fun so I raised my hand and uh, and somehow uh, through the application process and the physical and the testing and all of that I um, made it through enough wickets that I never got to Fort Devens and I went straight from my officer basic course to flight school and learned to fly helicopters and became a medevac helicopter pilot. Oh my god. Yeah we transitioned to Blackhawks about I guess about a year and a half before I left active duty. Okay so if it wasn't a Blackhawk what was it them. well we we started in th-55s they were little orange helicopters that looked uh, they sounded like a lawnmower with a um a rotor blade uh-huh. some rotor blades on it um just little things and so then i don't i don't think they start in th-55s anymore i haven't i honestly haven't paid attention i should one of these days uh and then we went to the huey when we graduate we, we spent like the, the first four weeks in a th-55 and went from that to the huey and, and flew the flew the huey for eight months
2: Wow. So man, like all right, so all right, let me just tell you I'm like I'm like I'm amazed. Like I'm talking are are you are you related to like Rosie the Riveter? Cuz you're like <laughs> <laughs> Um no, it's just I'm 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 listening and I'm just thinking about the time that, you know, the time frame in which you went in and I mean, women are still a minority in the military. But it was—I don't want to say worse, but worse when you were in. There were there were
1: there were many fewer of us. There were probably—I would say there were six or eight women in my flight school class. There weren't many of us. Mm-hmm. I would I, I think if I said there were a dozen, I would be overstating the number. When I, after graduating, I stayed at Fort Rucker and flew with Flatiron for. Uh, about eight months and then I went to the 63rd medical detachment um, in Landstuhl Germany Mm -hmm. and when I first got to Landstuhl I was the only female pilot in any country's military service flying in the southwest corner of Germany. There was a female medevac pilot in Stuttgart um, and I think there were a couple of other female pilots uh, in other units in other aviation units of but there were probably a half a dozen female pilots in Germany at that time.
2: What you were you in? Do you remember where in southern Germany you were?
1: I was at Landstuhl.
2: Oh, lost uh, Hello. You said that. That's okay. I promise I'm listening. I, I was just I, I was in an Apache unit in Ansbach, um, Germany. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Back then, so yeah. Well, now I think there are two or three medevac units. We had nine units scattered all around Germany um, at that point. And we, uh, one of the things that we did on a weekly basis was that, and so I got a lot of, I spent a lot of time flying around Germany. Was we did a, a, a run for the blood bank because the. I think probably it still is. Uh, the usurer blood bank was at the lawn um, hospital and we would fly around to all the, um, the army hospitals and pick up, uh, blood and deliver blood, uh, once a week. Oh, wow. So I yeah, just I
2: looked up. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: Yeah. So I, I've been, um, out to Ansbach for, for those, you know, flown near it, flown out to it for, for different things. We used to go out to, um, spend, we, all the medevac units would, uh, take a week at a time and we would go out and uh, live at Grafenbeer uh, and for, uh, to support the training uh, that was going on out there. Uh, so yeah, did, did a lot of interesting things, I mm-hmm. would say. I um, was fortunate enough to represent the Army at a, um, an air show in England. So I've actually crossed the English Channel in a awesome. helicopter. That it had an engine stall the week before, Uh, but so (laughs) we, they decided we still needed to do it. So I went with the maintenance officer because then they decided that at least we would have the right people with us if there was a problem. So it was the maintenance officer and I that went. Uh, So yeah, did a lot of really interesting and um, different kinds of things. I have been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time many, many times in my life. And at some point in time, you got out the military. How did that come about? Well, i i was I was really pretty miserable, and so I had uh, made up my mind that I was just going to get out. Not that I had a plan either, uh, uh, but I, I was going to just leave the leave the army. And I ended up again um, in a very fortunate place and. Uh, was able to extend for another year on active duty as an officer uh, with the idea that I was applying for a um, a you know an, an active army commission uh, th- that was a process uh, and and actually my whole thought process about it was that I still was really pissed at the army for what it for how I was being treated but we, the way things were written at that point if. I got um, turned down for my um, commission, for the, the active commission that then they would have to pay me 30,000 to leave. And so I thought, well, I think i pissed, I probably pissed off enough people that I, this is the $30,000 lottery that I could win. Uh, but I guess I didn't piss off as many people as I thought. And I, I was offered the, um, the commission and without the $30,000 and I still left uh, because in between in that year, I met and married a guy from the Air Force. He was a brand new first lieutenant he had pinned on the day we met so our careers were on vastly different tracks i had already been a captain for two years uh, and was due to rotate out of germany and he was pretty much uh he he was midway through his tour and so that meant that the beginning part of our marriage that we weren't going to be assigned anywhere and he was an aircraft maintenance officer the likelihood of us spending much time together uh, as a married couple on active duty was slim to none. And since I wasn't having a good time, I left active duty then. Uh, and there were no transition programs. I, I, I honestly I didn't even have um, a piece uh, an ETS physical. Uh, I had had my last my I had I had a current flight physical. Nobody said, "Oh, you should have a physical." I've never had a VA physical because nobody told me I needed to. I stayed in the IRR. The, my last physical on active duty was, or even in the reserves, was a flight physical. Um, and no, my unit barely gave as as nice as they were at the hospital where I was working on the staff at the Longstuhl Hospital for my last 10 months um, on active duty. Uh, they they were pretty nice, but. They were really ticked off that I was uh, leaving active duty and uh, they barely gave me time to clear. Uh, I had had an award. I I received an award when I left the Medevac unit before I came to work for them. And so they said, I'm sorry, you've had a recent award, so we can't even give you an award uh, before you leave. So I think I remember they took me out to lunch, Um, but that was, that was the extent of my leaving after my nine years and nine months. And uh, so on September 30th, 1988 was my last day on active duty. And October 1st, I became an Air Force spouse uh, and crashed. In 1988,
2: when you got out, there was absolutely no transition program. Um, and... I don't know at what point it started, but they, you know, at some point they, they started a, in the army, at least it was called ACAP, the army mm-hmm. career and alumni program. And then now it's the soldier for life program. It went from nothing when you got out to something when I was in, and then a little bit better when I ended up retiring. But even with, um, these programs that, uh, uh, the military does to help soldiers transition out. That transition is still a difficult thing for um, for service members. You did something about it for yourself and for and now for other people. What was that transition like for you as you transitioned and then how did that help you start what it is you do now?
1: Okay. It was it was really hard because you know when you go in the military, there's a there's a scientific process for replacing your civilian mindset with a military mindset and and that's I was had a, a very strong uh, military active duty mindset. Uh, and so it was really hard to transition to becoming an Air Force it, to, to, to like turn that off. It doesn't you just can't turn that off. Uh, but then all of a sudden I, I didn't I couldn't use that. That wasn't useful to me anymore. And so what it meant was that I felt like, you know, what a fish must feel like out of water. That's what I felt like totally uh, just lost in floundering. And I I. There were some Air Force spouses who, who took me under their wing a little bit. A couple senior spouses, and they gave me stuff to do, and so um, I became active in the spouse club. And you know, did big things. You know, ran programs, scholarship programs, those kinds of things. So I stayed involved. Um, I was still trying to find myself, trying to find some way of having some significance in the world because I didn't grow up thinking that I was gonna be a wife and a mother. That wasn't something that had been ingrained in me. Uh, and um, and here I was, I was the mother of a child um, and I sold Langeburger baskets for a year because I liked baskets and I figured out that I could have them cheaper if I sold them than if I just bought them from somebody else. And then I had a friend who uh, was with Mary Kay Cosmetics and she said, you know, people don't run out of baskets, but their pink bottles get empty. I was like, huh, yeah you're right. I might not have to work so hard. Uh, And, uh, and so actually I found myself working harder because I wasn't satisfied with just being a Mary Kay consultant. I decided to, uh, that I wanted to drive a free car and that I wanted to be a Mary Kay sales director. So I actually became a Mary Kay sales director with 40 consultants on my, in my unit across scattered across the United States. And I didn't drive a pink car, but I drove a red car and I would have driven a purple car if somebody else paid the uh, car payment and the insurance. So I did all that uh, and then uh, found myself homeschooling two daughters I I did that it it came to a point where that what I needed to do for that just didn't mesh really well with being the mother of of two daughters uh and a husband who was a workaholic and without any family support uh living near us so I I left Mary Kay uh homeschooled two daughters uh through one through ninth grade and one through 12th grade I did a lot with the Girl Scouts uh I was a Girl Scout as a kid, became a Girl Scout as an adult, Girl Scout leader, led the Girl Scout program in Stuttgart, Germany. When we went back to Germany to live there in 1999, I think it was, 98, 99. My my brain's foggy today for some reason. Uh, But at any rate, uh, yeah. And so then my husband retired in 2007 and I uh, watched him struggle uh, and was starting to get into some smart enough to come around to understand that I needed to do some personal growth. Uh, And so as I was exposed to personal growth opportunities, I exposed him and I got active in the uh, veteran community here in Hartford County, Maryland, where I live, uh, and got active with the the military installation, uh, doing supportive things there for organizations and, and really started uh, understanding what was missing from all the military transition programs it's it, it, i'm not going to pick on the army all the services uh they draw their the basics of their transition program from a department of defense transition program and what's missing is that there is nothing in that program that helps people make the transition from a military mindset to a civilian mindset and that is the struggle that people go through in transition they change one job to another they change maybe their location but the transition we call it a transition program but there's nothing that the department of defense does to help people transition and i i don't say that to beat the department of defense up it's just a fact uh and uh the way laws are written nowadays and and those kinds of things, there's really no return on investment for them to do that. Although I'm going to work on how to convince them that it's a very big return on investment to do that and see if we can't get some things changed. But in the meantime, that's what I did about uh, two and a half years, I guess if you add on two years when I thought of the program. So four and a half years ago, I came up with this idea in my head Uh, sat on it for two years because I was too afraid to implement it. And about two and a half years ago, in uh, July of 2018, launched Changing Focus Moving from We to Me, which is a transition program that helps uh, service members who are actually in the midst of transition, veterans from any era and their spouses, uh, start the, the mindset transition that they need to make. And we also talk about communications and intentional living uh a whole series of things we spend 24 hours together over four days uh getting that process started in their minds and it and I, and we stay connected we do we do training and coaching sessions uh, uh that are open to everybody uh group because we can all learn from each other we do those on a monthly basis to stay connected with people because it's really important to stay connected and because you know you go to an event and and we it's a, we call it a program you can call it whatever you want a series of workshops But we go to these things all the time. You go to hear a motivational speaker, you go to an all day workshop and and you learn things, but that's just the, that's always just the start of the process. That stuff, it, like it marinates in your mind um, over time. And so that's why I say we start the, that process for people. And, and oh, we, I, I'm always grateful when I find out that people actually have a year or two before they're going to transition when they come to us, because then I know that they're going to be in better shape when they actually leave active duty. Uh, more often than not, we catch up with people after they've left active duty or when they're in their last six to eight months on. Active duty, uh, and and then when they come through our program, the the light starts to go out in their head, and they understand why they've been struggling, um, in in their transition and in and, and in contemplating this. So we we get them caught up and, and back on track.
2: Um, a question that I have for you, um, when because you, you and you so you, you all do this, you will do spouses as well, which I think is great because that way. Uh, they, it, it just kind of reinforces that we're in it together kind of yeah. thing transition um, is a team but I sport thought, yeah uh, and and with that I was wondering what do you when you got out and your husband was still in and you had those air force spouses um, kind of help you out take you into their wings do you think that that um, spouse community helped you at all, or or uh, made it easier or better, in any way, had you not been a spouse? Do you see what I'm asking, or not really? Um, no, I'm no. sorry. No, it's okay. I so you when you when you when you transitioned out the army, right? You had those um, because you were an, a military spouse now, instead of just a service member you were still kind of in that military community, right? But if you were not married and you transitioned out.
1: Oh gosh, that would have been just absolutely the pits. Then I would have really been even more lost Mm -hmm. because at least I was still, still a part of a, um, of the military. I wasn't, I, I wasn't out in a, in, in an environment that didn't understand me. Uh, and that's, you know, Hartford County, as much as I love where we live, there are so many good things about it. We've been here for, um, going, this is our 18th our 14th, 13th year, I guess here, uh, 14th year. Uh, we came here in 2007. After I'd been here for a couple of years, I was approached by a local magazine, um, one of those small local, you know, hyper local magazines that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but they asked me to write an article about what it was like to be in the, um, a military family living in Hartford County. Uh, and, and Hartford County has had an army installation here, Aberdeen Proving Ground, since 1918, 1919. And the majority of the county doesn't even understand that they live in a military community. Uh, and so it, it, that was the big challenge, big challenge to come up here to think, okay, we're right here on the installation by the installation. My husband, uh, still works, um, as a, a, a DOD contractor, uh, and the people in my community had no understanding of, of my life of our life as a military family. So, yeah, for people who, for people who leave active duty, uh, for whether whether they're separating or whether they're retiring, and they go off into a military community or into a civilian community that has no ties to a military installation. Wow, wow. Yeah, and so that's that's
2: huge. And I think for me, I was I was single. Well, I I've always been single, but like, so I had to transition out. But I, fortunately, I think for me, what my saving grace was. That I was already um, connected to a, a church that I was attending while I was on active duty, and went into the reserves, and that church had a had a um, had some veterans or, or service members in it. So it kind of helped me feel like, even though I wasn't in it day in and day out, that I at least had I, I had some people I could relate to.
1: Uh, Yeah, and and I think that's really important. That's key. And, uh, and so, you know, part of what we we teach in, um, in changing focus moving from we to me is I, I, we have an optional session where I teach people how to, uh, to network, uh, both online and in person, and it's very important, it's really critical, uh, as you uh, transition to be um, to get yourself comfortable enough that you can go and, and meet people uh, and reach out to the uh, the veteran, the military-affiliated organizations in your community. And I don't think I don't think there's any place in the United States that doesn't have uh, a veterans organization near it. And now there are some uh, veteran organizations like the IAVA that are strictly online, so it's really easy for people to stay connected uh, with people who at least have a similar frame of reference for how they have lived in the previous years. Yeah.
2: So here's a question that I have, um, as far as your, your, um, conferences, uh, or whatever word we're using for it, I'm going to be attending for the first time your conference this month. Um, what can I and others, Expect as we attend this event. Like, what am I going to be getting? What are we going to be getting out of it? What's it going to look like? Of what you can share, I don't want to do any. Yeah, spoilers. I don't want to give.
1: I don't want to give away all the surprises. And I will. What I didn't say before is this is free. People don't pay to come to this uh, because it's something uh, we have it that way because it, we feel that this is something that the military should be giving um, our service members, and we're not going to. The, it's not something that service members should have to pay for, uh, to to do, to start this mindset transition uh, and, and get going with it. So it's free. So what we uh, expe- what we ask is that uh, people who come that they are willing to trust the process and to understand that this is a process, and uh, to play full on, to uh, to uh, it, it's the, the, the typical thing where you get out of it what you put into it. So uh, we don't PowerPoint you to death. We will play with Legos. We will paint. We, will, um, we have some PowerPoints, but we spend a lot of time talking in discussions. Uh, and you're going to uh, think about where you've been uh, even um, as a kid and and what you've done as an adult and and what you um are looking for in the future uh and so you're going to go through a whole range of um of things and one of the one of the great things about it that i didn't know would happen when we came into the virtual arena uh and i guess i was naive to not realize it would happen was that Since we're in the virtual arena, you have the opportunity to meet people from across the United States. So uh, many people come uh, to Changing Focus without a little hesitant because they don't know anybody. But at the end, uh, at Sunday at noon, you'll have some new brothers and sisters. You're muted. (laughs) I found that people can start to develop some close relationships um, in the time uh, that we are together because we ask you to share. Uh, and, and, and so if you're willing to dig deep and do the work, then you, you find that the time that we spend together is highly valuable. And I'm really excited in next week's session, we will have a participant uh, from the US military who's living in Germany. We'll have a participant, a veteran who um, is in Honduras. Uh, and then we have a, uh, a recently retired officer. He started with us in November, but then had a family emergency. So he's gonna come back to go through the program. Uh, recently retired officer in the South African uh, Air Force who's oh, gonna wow. participate with us from, from South Africa. So you're gonna be with people um, who are live across the United States and across the globe. So I'm going to backtrack for
2: a second. Because you're messing me up. (laughs) No, I mean, I say you're messing me up. I have tissues here because of all these people that I speak with, like you, who say something that I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) And uh, I mean, it's the like, how do I say this? Military, so military personnel, and veterans can connect on a level that no one else can. And, uh, you can sit down and meet somebody. You and I did this last week or whenever it was that we've never met and could, we could talk for hours. Now, my family would say, well, that's just because it's me and I can talk all, all day to anybody. But, um, there's a bond in the military that's like no other. Um, yet that's when we get out in the military, we go from having this tight family and bond um, to nothing. And isolation is so incredibly easy to find yourself in. I have found myself there um, a lot of times, more more times than I care to admit. And it gets difficult and you can sink, sink um, into a, a dark place. Um, so then I come to your conference and it's kind of like a, not, it's not a catch 22, but it's like a, I'm, I'm going to a conference where with my people, with veterans or, and service members, um, yet I've been isolated so long. It's kind of difficult to open up. Um, and then, and so then, you know, your tears just kind of made me, you you got choked up and I was like, man, that. I, but I get it because it's hard. How do y'all, how, how do y'all navigate? and again, I'm not trying to get into your, Mm -hmm. into the program, but like, how do y'all navigate that when you have people who have went from, you know, have been stripped away from this family that the uniform brought people together?
1: Well, we, we reaffirm from the, from the very beginning, uh, when we first, um, start on Thursday night, that, uh, that the changing focus moving from we to me bubble is um is a closed space and nothing that's said there leaves there uh and so people can feel comfortable uh lefford fate and erica kelly who are have been my core um in in my core teaching team this this last year they are masters of, of facilitation uh and we we have a a new facilitator, uh, Bob Burton, who is joining us this time and uh, Bruni Garcia, who uh, was a participant in one of our spring programs last year, has joined us uh, as an MC and to help with the chat and to answer questions and encourage people. Uh, and so they've been through the process of, they've been, been through changing focus, they've been through the transition process. Uh, and so uh, it, it's a trust thing uh, and uh, and guided.
2: And do you, I had to make sure I wasn't muted again. Uh, do you, do you, um, of the, of the people like overall that have come, have you noticed that um, like what, what's the willingness of people opening up?
1: Um, well, I'll be honest with you. We've, we've had some people start and then they get to a certain point and we're asking them to think deeper into themselves than they are willing to. And they, we've had some people drop out because of that. And see that's, that's- And that's, and that makes me sad. I, I always reach out to them. I continue to reach out to them uh, because once they've they've come and joined us in any way, shape or form, I still consider them to be part of our LTI family. Uh, and we, if they wanna come back and, and go through the program again, um, they're welcome to, uh, because thinking, Thinking into your life, uh, and uh, we—it's we, not easy. Uh, some of us have had some some really not nice things happen to us in our lives, both as um, in our civilian lives and in our military lives. Uh, and and we ask you to reflect on on all of that during our time together, because uh, and some people will open up about it, and some people won't. Um, and uh, but all of that has made you who you are uh and so it's important to to talk about it and and to address it we we have a whole on on friday we'll have a whole segment on forgiveness we think it's it's you can't move forward in your life without forgiveness and so we talk a good solid bit about uh forgive forgiveness and this is not just forgiving other people in fact the the forgiving other people is actually the least of it we um Generally, most of us have to forgive ourselves for things that we we didn't do. (laughs) I quit. I'm not even going
2: to show up. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. That's true. That is so true. Um, Man, no. Are you sure you don't want to move it to this weekend instead of next? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I really am excited about about being able to attend there. Um, I've been separated from the military for. A year and a half now, um, but it hasn't been until probably the past six or eight months that I've been serious about um, about the transition process for me. Um, I I started and one thing that helped kickstart it last last summer, um, I started a book uh, written by the retired general uh, Dempsey Martin Dempsey mm-hmm. called "There's No No Time for Spectators" and. Um, As I read that book, I was like, oh, my gosh, I am being a spectator for my own life. Um, I I don't have anybody telling me what to do, when to do it, how to do it anymore. Um, And it's my life. So I'm responsible. That whole I got to be the captain of my own ship kind of thing um, really resonated. So I started, you know, I started saying, okay, I have to do something to take care of me and to um, to live my life, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. And, um, or like I, I the way I kind of like to say it is that whole tombstone thing of you have your date of birth and your date of death. Um, I, I need to work on that dash between those two dates and, and cause to me that dash is what's more important of defining not how long my life was, cause I really don't have, you know, control over that or over, over those two dates, but I have control over that dash. And, yes. um, so you know, so that's kind of where I am in my transition of of, of saying, um, I need to, you know, I need to, I need to work on it and doing the very thing that you um, call, um, you call it, of uh, changing it, going from we to me is hard because I'm so used to, um, especially with the military. You know, I think, I think I, I can, tr- I attribute a lot of it to the military, but my dad says uh, I've always been that. Um, big heart of always putting other people first. And so it's kind of hard to focus on me and do me, but you gotta do it. You know, you really gotta you really have to um well you
1: know. we talk about it as um putting on your oxygen mask. Do you know? Yes. When you oh. um get on an airplane, uh that you have to go through the required safety briefings and and they don't say uh, put on the oxygen masks of the people that need help that are around you before you. They say put on yours and then help the people that are around you. And that's what this is about. This is your oxygen mask moment. Uh, transition is, is an oxygen mask moment. You have to take care of yourself if you are going to do well in the next act of your life. only time during my period of service that there was something that I'd have a patch from, or, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and, and there's stuff I don't qualify for because I never deployed. Yeah. I have, I essentially have the barest bones of veterans benefits because of the period I served. I get no preference for anything. I have never, I didn't even qualify for a federal job when they started giving spouse preference. I have never had any benefit For anything for being a military service member or a military spouse never qualified for a thing I'm not a post 9-11 vet I'm not a post 9-11 spouse Um, the veteran the spouse programs didn't start to ramp up until um, my husband retired Mm -hmm. in 2007 Uh, you know I have had no benefits and and so it really irks me when people um are like, uh, excuse me, you know what? What good are you? It's like, well, we had to keep the military going so that it would be ready for you when you were when you came to be of the, of your time to serve. We could have just yeah. like put everything away and then you could have started again, but I don't think that was really good.
0: The first thing that comes to mind when I think about being a veteran is sacrifice, because you sacrifice a lot. And if you're trying to raise a family in the military, they too sacrifice a lot. But I'd be remiss if I did not think about those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Also, when I look at the faces of my family, when they talk about my career, I see great pride and and that gives me great joy. If I've ever served with you, I thank you. I could not thank you enough for your contribution to my career. If you are currently serving, I commend you. And I would say, do not be a 60% soldier, be a 100% soldier, so that at the end of the day, when you look in that mirror, you too can feel great pride. I want to thank you, say be safe, and God bless. Thank you for calling. Please leave a message. Being a veteran
2: means having the honor and privilege to serve our country and to be alongside others who made and continue to make the ultimate sacrifice.
0: Thank you. Have a nice day.